recording. I'm very excited about what we have to look at this morning, and I want to get right to it, and I, for once, will dispense with any kind of lengthy introduction. Oh, I don't know, maybe I'll tack it on at the end or something, but uh, take your Bibles and find your way to Hebrews chapter 13. We are still in Hebrews chapter 13, but we're almost finished. We're going to be examining verses 20 and 21 this morning, which forms what's been called traditionally, the benediction, the benediction, or it's a benediction, but it's the benediction of Hebrews. A benediction is a technical name for the kind of request that writers make here, uh, or the writer rather, and the kind that actually comes at the end of New Testament letters and sermons for that matter. Benedictions are designed to invoke God's power or his powerful intervention, I should say, in our immediate situations, especially those situations that are beyond our control. Sometimes these benedictions ask God's help in the form of blessing, but however it's worded, it's a plea, a plea for God to act. And in the context of Hebrews 13, the writer makes a plea to God in one of those situations that is far beyond the writer's control, and that's this, to turn the spiritually weak and drifting saints in this particular church around and equip them for service. That wasn't anything the writer could do. And so he he makes a plea to God to do this. Now, there's some great uh, propositions that I want to rehearse with you that come right out of this benediction, And we will look at them, but we're going to wait until the very end. I actually published them in the bulletin for you so that uh, it'll expedite things. Before I get to that list, first things first. I need to say a few words about the practicality of this particular benediction for the Hebrews at that time. And then examine with you its twofold structure. We've got to understand the passage, the the actual benediction itself, before we can pull out these propositions. So I trust that even just that will bless your soul as much as it did mine when I worked through this a few weeks ago. So a word first, the practicality of this benediction for the Hebrews and really the whole body of Christ. This benediction is certainly suited to the particular situation of the first century church here. His reference, for example, to the God of peace is quite appropriate since the church was in chaos. They had not been characterized by a peaceful and quiet resolve to battle on as faithful soldiers of Christ. Many actually were wavering in their faith and they were retreating to Judaism for confidence. Some of them were attending church services and the temple. Others had stopped going to church altogether and just went to the temple. And those in this church who hadn't yet professed faith in Christ but were learning about him and experiencing a bit of the overflow of God's blessing on the church um, and also uh, the the wonderful uh, answers to prayers that they were receiving, well, this group had lately grown more cautious about their affiliation with Christianity. They liked the loving reception they got. Again, they were amazed at how God was answering the prayers of the members 
of this church and providing for this church. But really, they found the persecution that came with being associated with Christ and the struggling and fighting and, a, and a spiritual exertion that's necessary to mature in a faith that's called the race intolerable. They found it all intolerable, which is why they started to pull away. Consequently, then, a good many of them were in danger of apostatizing from the orthodoxy that they had given mental assent to. The spiritual climate of the church was not healthy at all. It needed help. So it makes perfect sense, then, that, we would clo- that the writer would close out this letter by appealing in a benediction in typical Old Testament fashion to the God of peace. Now, we haven't read this yet. We're going to get to it. But it opens with the God of peace. May the God of peace, the writer says in verse 20. Now, why do I say typical Old Testament fashion to the God of peace? Why do I say it's typical? Well, the Old Testament saints had a number of titles that they designed for God. And those titles focused on certain aspects of his nature. Now, they did this so that when they found themselves in a particular situation where they needed to invoke God's intervention, they would use the title that best fit the situation. Let me give you just two examples from the Psalms. There is no shortage of Psalms in which the psalmist refers to God as the God of my refuge. The saints prayed to God with that particular title, God my refuge, in prayers that in prayers where they needed to invoke God's protection. So the context was protection, the title they used, God my refuge because it was appropriate. Um, It makes sense. Another title is God my shepherd. And David opens his famous 23rd Psalm by addressing God as his shepherd in a context where he reminds himself uh, of God's ability to care for him. So again, the, the title focusing on the particular attribute of God makes sense. The writer of Hebrews himself, an Old Testament scholar with an understanding of this practice, calls upon the God of peace. Because peace is what the congregation needed most, a peace that only God could give. In addition to this peace, the writer will also mention in this benediction, we'll look at it, familiar themes that he already developed in his letter, such as Jesus' blood sacrifice, Jesus' role as their sympathizer, which translates into the benediction as shepherd, and the eternal covenant. And he ties these themes together with the benediction in order to customize this appeal for them. At the same time, I want to say that this prayer has a dual application. It ministered not only to the Hebrews then at that time, but it ministers to a wider audience. It really speaks to all future unbelievers in churches who have given only intellectual assent to the gospel and maybe are on the cusp of apostasy. It speaks also to all future saints as well. It becomes a a shot in the arm for the timid Christians, and it, it becomes a sustaining motivation to mature Christians in the front lines of the good fight. 
Um, the last task we have before us then is to consider some important, um, before we consider two, uh, the important propositions, is to consider the twofold structure of this benediction. All right? So we need to understand then the very benediction itself. We see how it's applicable to the Hebrews. It has a wider application to the, to the saints in every era uh, of, um, uh, of, uh, of time in history. But we need to get into it now. We need to get into it and look at the structure before we can understand the propositions. I'm arguing that this benediction has a twofold structure. The first part acknowledges, simply acknowledges God's glory and abilities, which forms the basis for the appeal. In other words, who's, who's he appealing to? Well, he's appealing to God, and rightly so, because God is all-powerful, he's glorious, and, and he is able to answer this appeal. The second part of the appeal is actually the very content of it. What is the appeal itself? What is he asking God to to fulfill. So it's a twofold structure. Start with part one, the basic appeal, or the basis rather for the appeal in verse 20. God is the basis of this benediction. And that only makes sense because only God can answer the appeal. Now, we can learn a great deal about the nature of God and see him accurately by simply noticing how the New Testament refers to him as well as how God refers to himself. So many today, I think, attempt to recreate God in their image. And not just unbelievers. Christians today as well do this. Christians with an underdeveloped theology, I think, are guilty of redefining God according to their own sensibilities. Some of them, for example, cannot imagine God ever doing something that they themselves would never do. Or not, or, or not doing something that they themselves would do. And so they project themselves and their abilities on God, and that's how they define him. That's how they think about him. So it's important to understand how the Bible defines God or refers to God and how God refers to himself. Here, the writer refers to God in a certain way. The writer portrays God in a very significant way. So let me go on to give you the way in which he portrays God. He calls God, first of all, the God of peace. The God of peace. In verse 20, the opening words, may the God of peace. Now this phrase focuses on God as the source of all true peace. That's really what it means. God of peace means God is the source of all true peace. True peace comes only from God. Now what kind of peace is this? Well, for starters, it's the absence of hostility and war that existed between God and the unconverted person. The Bible is very clear that those who are not Christians are at war with God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. In conversion, then, God reconciles the hostile believer to himself. Listen to how Paul puts it, again in, in Romans, this time chapter 10, verse 5. Paul says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You see, God ended the war between him and us at conversion and gave us instant peace. 
At that moment, he forgave us, judicially pardoned us, saved us, declared us righteous, and replaced our old hostile nature that was opposed to him with a new nature that loves him. And as a result, we enjoy sweet communion with a holy God. And this reconciliation brings us great peace of mind as well. We know that the worst is over for us. God will never condemn us because Jesus took our hell for us. Now, as I say, there was especially, this was especially appropriate for the first century church. There were still unbelieving God-fearers in it who needed to be reconciled to God. They were wavering. They were waiting. And the Christian members who were wavering needed also to understand that the peace that God gave them at salvation is most keenly felt in their lives, throughout their Christian lives, actually, when they are in the will of God. Being in the will of God is the most peaceful place that any Christian can ever be. But we don't have to be in turmoil, beloved, to be on the receiving end of God's peace, just because the Hebrews were at this time. No, here is the wider application. Those of us who are mature in our faith and running well sustain our running by, rem by reminding ourselves that God is always the true source of our peace. We can enjoy that peace that God established in us at conversion to a fuller and greater degree when we're obedient to him when we remain obedient to him. In fact, this peace remains constant with us even through difficult times and tragedies and trials and, and persecutions. Why? Well, because it's not circumstantial. No, it's grounded in our relationship with Christ, who never changes. It's a confidence that comes with having full assurance that we are right with God, both judicially and parentally. We have the blessing of our Heavenly Father, his pleasure and approval, which becomes our stability in life's valleys. While the world knows only a peace that's fickle, you know, it comes and goes, believers know peace in Christ, a peace that really is beyond comprehension to the world, we're told, because we enjoy it even during the worst of times. So as we run, we need to avoid the world's cheap imitations for peace. Don't be fooled. Christians who seek peace in their surroundings are really at odds with God at that very moment, and I guarantee their lives will soon become chaotic. By the same token, they will experience a sweet peace when they're in fellowship with God, even while in the thick of bad times, and it won't make a difference. So we have the God of peace. That's who the writer appeals to. The writer appeals to God also as the God of life, the God of life. It says here, may the God of peace who brought up from the dead. Let's just stop there. Now this reference is to raising Jesus from the dead, and it speaks to God's ability to bring life out of death. The God of resurrection. He is the God of life. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, then he can make good on his covenantal promises to us. 
And he can make good also on his promise to raise us from the dead or our bodies from the dead at the end of time. And he can also answer the plea of this benediction, which we'll see in a moment. God can raise the spiritually dead to life in conversion. And then he can go on to sustain them in their faith. For those who are receiving this letter and for those of us today who read this letter, both believers and unbelievers as well, in the context of this letter, it certainly highlights God's ability to keep all of his promises. The God of life will impart life and he will sustain life. That's a promise that he can keep. And he, rose, he raised rather Jesus from the dead in order to demonstrate that he has the ability to keep such promises. The writer moves from the God of peace to the God of life to now the God who is faithful. It says that he brought him up, that is Jesus, from the grave through the blood of the eternal covenant, the great shepherd of the sheep, that is Jesus, our Lord. The writer mentions um, a promise, a specific promise, since we're talking about promises, uh, that is foundational. It's a foundational promise, and it is the eternal covenant. We spent a great deal of time laying out God's covenants and how they all fit together. The one that he made with Jesus before he created the world was the covenant of redemption, you may remember. And that covenant was recast as the covenant of grace in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's God's promise to save a people for himself on the condition of the shed blood of the seed of the woman, that is, the son of promise. And this was fulfilled in what we call now the New Covenant. Jesus even referred to his blood that would, that would inaugurate this New Covenant as my blood of the covenant. Now, what does the writer mean exactly then when he says that God raised Jesus from the dead through the blood of the eternal covenant? Well, simply this, raising Jesus from the dead is part of the promise of the New Covenant. So once Jesus died, spilled his blood, and inaugurated the new covenant, God makes good on his promise then to raise Jesus from the dead. In other words, Jesus shed his blood first, through and then through resurrection, um, his blood proved to be efficacious and ratified God's covenantal promises for his elect. What did this mean then for the writer's immediate audience? Well, it recalled to their mind the writer's previous argument that the sacrificial system was not superior to the new covenant. It couldn't provide a clear conscience. It, it couldn't save anyone. The blood of animals couldn't cleanse anyone from sin, nor did God take any delight in them. They had to give way to a better sacrifice in Jesus as the priesthood and the role of the high priest also gave way to Jesus as a better mediator. So the mention of the covenant here reminded the readers that they were willing actually to trade the precious reality of the new covenant 
for the old covenant shadow of it. Very clever way of, uh, of tying all that the writer said about the covenant here in this benediction. The message to all Christians here, Christians in every era, both immature and mature, is that the Lord has built into the new covenant consistent reminders that he is faithful to his promises. We have consistent reminders built into the new covenant that remind us that the Lord is faithful to keep his promises. The Lord's Supper, which we celebrated this morning, is a great example of that. It reminds us every time we practice it that God inaugurated the new covenant by the sacrifice of his son. And if God proves faithful in that, we can be sure that he will prove faithful to us in all other areas of our Christian life. He will also consummate the new covenant with us in glory someday when Jesus drinks that fourth cup with us in heaven. What else do we have? Well, the writer appeals to God as the God who cares. The God who cares. The writer refers to the great shepherd of the sheep. God did more than establish the new covenant through Jesus' death and resurrection. He established Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep, as Lord of lords. You see, Jesus proved to be our Savior when he shed his blood on the cross for our sakes, and he proved to be our Lord when he conquered death by rising from the dead. What this would have communicated to these drifting Christian Jews was that Jesus is qualified to shepherd them, to lead them and guide them, that he is their Lord and has authority over their lives, not some religious system that, that did little more than point to, to his coming. And this title for Jesus sums up all that the writer has said about him. He is a better mediator than angels. He's He's better, a better mediator than the Old Testament high priests. His priestly ministry to us is eternal. He preserves his flock. He was prophesied to be our shepherd. Book of Isaiah, book of Ezekiel. And also he laid down his life for the sheep. So says John 10, verse 11. What it says to all Christians then is that they need to seek their direction and their guidance in, the life, in their life in the Lordship of Christ. Jesus said so himself in, the very, in his very gospel message. He said that anyone looking for rest for their souls, which means salvation, will find it by submitting to me, by taking my yoke upon them. Yoke, of course, is an instrument of submission. Well, that's part one. Part one has rec it recognizes God for who he is. And we have seen the, the various ways in which the, the writer refers to God and characterizes him. He is the basis for his appeal. What is the appeal? The appeal comes in verse 21. The writer appeals to God in his prayer on behalf of the saints in a very specific way. And it's important to rehearse, I just want to say before we get into it, the nature of God and the abilities of our great God when we ever appeal to him. It's a great way 
to, to uh, instill confidence in our asking God for, for things that, uh, that we need his help for. So in this, the writer asks the God of peace, the God of life, the God who is faithful, the God who cares, to do specifically this, verse 21, equip them, to equip them. He says, may the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now I want to break the sentence down to its, to just to its simplest form first, because I think it, it'll help you to see a few things. It'll help you to see the mechanics of this part of the verse. It'll also help you to see that the writer's at, what the writer's asking God to do and how he believes God will, will actually answer his plea. It's basically this. Boil down to its basic components. God equips you by working in you through Jesus Christ. That's the, la that's the, the second part of, of this plea. That's the appeal in its basic form. God equips you by working in you through Jesus Christ. It's the main idea working out in this half. So the structure is important. We're the, uh, we're the ones being equipped. God is the one doing the equipping, and Jesus is the means through which God equips us. The other elements in the verse really just qualify uh, these essentials. So let's look at each of those phrases in our breakdown. God equips us in every good work to do his will. He equips us in every good work to do his will. It's true, on the one hand, that we Christians are totally outfitted for righteous living the very moment of our conversion. We have all the working parts for a godly life. The scriptures, the mind of Christ, to understand the scriptures, the new nature, uh, complete with all the spiritual gifts, the ability to bring to blossom the fruit of the Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit who teaches us and convicts us and encourages us, the means of prayer that both the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ facilitate together, and the membership of the body of Christ. We have it all. We're totally outfitted at the moment of conversion to live a victorious life in Christ. Totally outfitted, totally equipped. We have all of that. There's nothing more that you ever have to wait for from God or to receive from God after your conversion. Nothing. You've got it all. Now, if that's the case, how do we understand this prayer for God to equip us in every good work or in every good thing? If we're already equipped, why pray to be equipped? Well, the key in answering that lies in the meaning of the word equip. It can mean to outfit somebody for a particular tasks, a task, as I just mentioned. But it can also mean to prepare someone for a particular task. And that's the idea in this context. God would make us complete in all things, ready us for, for all things in the Christian life. And that process takes time. Just because God has outfitted us with all the tools that we need for life and godliness doesn't mean that we know how to use them all right away. Right after, <clears throat> after a human spends nine months in the womb, he comes out into the world with all he will ever need to become a mature human being, right? Everything. Gets it all there in nine months. 
But at the moment of this birth, he's at a loss as to how to use what he has. In fact, he doesn't even know what he has. And he will have to learn how to eat, how to crawl, how to walk and talk, maintain his personal hygiene, keep regular sleep hours, and so on. If you abandon a newborn, it will die. Why? Because he needs nurturing help from adults. That's why he needs to be prepared during the formative years to use the innate skills and talents that he was born with. So the spiritual life is much the same way. God brings us into this spiritual world by his own mercy and grace, fully outfitted to live the Christian life. But then he prepares us to use the tools he has given. We start out as baby Christians. We grow at our own rates. And godliness, Paul says, takes training. It doesn't come easy. And this is especially true for those of us who were saved later in life. We have to reprogram ourselves to give godly responses to in, in, places, in, in place of sinful responses that we've trained ourselves to give all our unconverted lives. Sanctification is a progressive process that calls us to renew our minds, start thinking biblically so that we will be sure to act biblically. And we learn how to apply God's truth in all situations of life that we may stay in the will of God at every turn. <clears throat> what the writer has in view here is our maturity then, growing in God's wisdom and using our armor, engaging in every good work that God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Now the way God equips us is by working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That's the second uh, clause he does this by working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Ezekiel chapter 36 contains God's prophecy of the new covenant, you may remember, where the Lord, Lord promises this, verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and, and, and be careful to follow my ordinances. Now with all that the writer has emphasized about the new covenant in this letter, it's more than likely that he had Ezekiel 36 in mind when he wrote this benediction. In keeping with his promise of the new covenant, God will prepare us both for heaven, that's conversion, and to live an aggressive faith on this earth, that's sanctification. Beloved, never doubt that you are the product of God's loving, redeeming work. And the work that he began in you at conversion, according to Philippians 1.6, he will continue to develop in you until the return of Christ. More specifically, Paul says in, in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Isn't that something? It's important to see that kind of life that God has given us is really designed to please him. It's not designed to do anything else. If we try and do anything else with it, well, then we're going to fail miserably. That's really the goal of our lives, to please Christ. It is the overarching goal that should temper all other lesser goals. What we do on this earth, in the time allotted to us by our good sovereign, should all be to fulfill the overarching goal 
of pleasing Christ. So we've said that God prepares us by working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. The last phrase shows us the realm in which God works. God works in us through Jesus Christ. The writer means really that God works in us through the context that Jesus Christ created. In other words, God works in those who have been born again and stand in Christ as members of the new covenant. It's in that realm or or that condition of being in Christ that God works with us to mature us. The thinking here is much the same that we find in Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus in that condition, in that context. God works in those who stand in Christ to conform them to the image of Christ. God also works in us through the mediation of Christ as well. He provides our care, our help in time of need, channels grace to us all through the great shepherd, Christ, from heaven. You need to admit, or must admit, this benediction is very inspiring even to Christians who are already running well, much more to those in the faith who need their confidence in the faith back again. It appeals, its appeal is based on the nature of God who then works to bless all his elect through the finished work and ongoing mediation of our good shepherd. It's no surprise then that, that this benediction turns into doxology with the very last phrase. Now that the writer has emphasized the efficacy of Jesus' blood, his personal and relational aspects as the great shepherd, the eternal covenant that he inaugurated with with the fullest expression of God's redemptive work in us, and that Jesus is the avenue through which God works in us, he is compelled to ascribe glory to his Trinitarian God. And it is also another counter, by the way, to the inadequate views of Jesus that this church was still entertaining from the Essenes. Okay, so that's the benediction. That's the benediction uh, in, uh, in all its detail. We've seen how it applies to the Hebrews in, in the first century, how it applies to the body of Christ in every era, and we've seen its structure. We have the basis for the appeal and the appeal itself. Now that we understand everything, I want to go rather quickly through these propositions. This is what we pull out of the benediction for us today, right now. At at the very least, there are six. The first one is this. Turn to the Lord and invoke his help regularly and especially in situations beyond our control. That should be very clear because that's exactly what the writer does. Beloved, we encounter situations along our spiritual pilgrimage that are way beyond our ability to change or overcome, and they leave us feeling utterly helpless. Escalating gas prices, high inflation, the scourge of a virus, mandates, and hard-hearted people. Truth is, we're helpless with those situations. Very much so. We can't change any of that. 
We don't have the power. But that's nothing to be ashamed of. Life is bigger than we are, and much of it is out of our control. However, while helpless from time to time, we never have a good reason to be hopeless. To be helpless and to be hopeless are not the same thing. Neither is it true that helplessness must breed hopelessness. While that may be true in the world, it is, it is the exact opposite in the Christian life. As far as helplessness is concerned, that's simply the occasion for God's strength to be magnified in our weakness, right? That's why Paul concludes in 2 Corinthians 12, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And as far as hopelessness goes, well, our hope is not determined by our circumstance. It's anchored in Christ, remember? And since he never changes, our hope remains constant. And you should remember that the next time you find yourself in a helpless situation. So how do we handle situations that are beyond our control, beyond our mental and physical capabilities to overcome? Well, that's easy. Turn to the Lord and invoke his help. God is sovereign. More than that, he is the creator of helpless situations. And at the most propitious time in your life, God brings each helpless situation your way with a predetermined outcome. Who better than God then to turn to for help and direction when we're in the middle of a helpless situation? Isn't that why we sing, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me in thy powerful hand. You sing that? Do you mean it? Number two, next proposition. Refusing to turn to God for help, especially in situations beyond our control, is a sign of sinful pride. Refusing to turn to God for help is a sign of sinful pride. Beloved, never be too proud to recognize your helplessness in situations that are beyond your control or too shy to appeal to God for help. God is only too happy to help us. In fact, he delights when we cry out to him. That's what he does. He accomplishes the impossible for us. He delights to see us so dependent upon him. Number three, we need to train ourselves to depend on God for life and godliness. It's not automatic. It's not automatic. Well, maybe all this is nothing new to you. You're saying, yeah, we turn to God in those contexts that are beyond our control. Obviously, who wouldn't? But not so fast. No, depending on God is not automatic for Christians. Our minds don't naturally default to dependence upon God. Dependence upon God's strength, and not just in those situations that seem impossible for us, but for the entire Christian life, oh, is very much a learned practice, beloved. This is really a, a sound biblical principle that works out more than you realize. Number four, God delights to work through believers who acknowledge their helplessness, for God magnifies his strength in their weakness. He magnifies their strength, his strength in their weakness. I mentioned a moment ago that Paul learned 
that God's power and strength are magnified in his weakness. And he brings this up, actually, the first time in 1 Corinthians 1, under the heading of local church ministry. It's actually active there as well. He says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the insignificant things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no human may boast before God. Paul tells us here that what the world considers insignificant when it looks at the church is exactly what God uses to impact the world for Christ. That's you and me, sorry to say. The reason God uses what the world considers merely common and ordinary is very simple. When the church impacts unbelievers with the gospel or ushers in a revival, it becomes evident to all right away that God was the one who brought about the outcome. All glory and credit then go to him. And this is how God magnifies his divine strength through human weakness. Paul argues that same, very same principle, and, and he argues that it's working out also in his own preaching ministry. We saw this in our Sunday school hour this morning. He makes it clear to his audience in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I also was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching, well, they were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but on the power of God. If salvation of souls which was far beyond Paul's ability to secure, resulted from such a straightforward presentation of the gospel as that, with no impressive oratory, rhetorical devices, or intimidating physical presence of a speaker, you know it was all of God's doing. And that, of course, is the point. That's an important realization, I think, for a full-time church planter, wouldn't you say? Ian Murray observes in his work, Revival and Revivalism, that faithful preachers of great revivals preach the same way before, during, and after the revival. He concluded that it was not the preacher that caused the revival, but the Holy Spirit working through sound, faithful preaching. When God, when God brings salvation to the masses, he will do it through the faithful preaching of the word. These preachers are just tools in the hands of the Redeemer, as was Paul, and as are you and I. Our concern then in any situation of life to which God has called us is to be faithful to that call and leave to God the results. We're quite helpless to create destiny, even our own. That's God's business. Our part, our part is to be faithful and depend on God for the outcome. Here's what it means to depend on God to live our Christian lives, to minister. Here's what it means. 
It means that we bring sound Bible teaching and preaching and resist the temptation to change the message because we think that some of its elements will not, will not be received well or be popular with the masses. Or running a local church ministry according to sound biblical principles and resist the temptation to lure the world in through marketing techniques or with worship services that cater to the tastes of non-Christians. Or obeying God and resisting the temptation to alter God's will for us, even a little, because we think that to do all that God expects us to do in a particular situation might worsen our immediate situation. Or minister faithfully and resist the temptation to force an outcome, even a biblical outcome. Strong arming or manipulating people and situations to bring about a desired end, even if it's a biblical end, is not pleasing to God. It's not pleasing to God, again, even if the end is biblical, because biblical ends don't justify the sinful means. Please Christ and resist the temptation to please people of significance in our lives or in the church. That's what it means to depend on God. We could give more examples, but I think you get the idea. The entire Christian life is a life of dependence upon the Lord. That's why Jesus sent his Holy Spirit. He is the comforter, and he is there to help us. The writer of Hebrews understood his limitations. He knew he was powerless to turn the tide of spiritual drifting in the hearts of the first century believers. He knew he had no power to reform a redeemed heart in in a godly direction, much less transform a depraved one, which is why we find that at the end of all his formal theological arguments and his counters and rebuttals to their erroneous thinking and his reminders to them of the steadfast and warrior-like stance for Christ that they once mustered, and his many pastoral admonitions and encouragements from apostolic truth, he makes an appeal to the Lord on their behalf that God might work through his efforts to bring about a godly change in them for Christ's sake. Number five, appeal to God, appeals to God are not the last resort option. They're not last resort options but rather standard practice of faithful Christians in all that they do. It's a standard practice. Please don't get the impression that I'm suggesting for one minute that appealing to God is our our last resort. In some cases, it may be the only thing we can do, but it's never the last resort option. We should preface all that we do with such appeals for God's help. Depending upon God is the most courageous, surest, godliest and should be the most consistent thing that we can do for ourselves and for others. Well, there are several more, but I'm just going to give one more, and that is that doctrine leads to doxology. Doctrine leads to doxology. What do I mean by that? The doxology, as we noted, comes at the very end of verse 21, which is the formal ending of Hebrews what comes after is what we might call a postscript. It's worth, worthy of notice that after a heavy theological treatise, such as Hebrews is, that the writer brings it to a formal close 
with praise to God. Doxology. I would submit to you, beloved, that praise, doxology, should be the logical outworking of our doctrine. If it isn't, then something's wrong. God's word is living. It is active. It's powerful. It will accomplish all that God has set, set out for it to accomplish. It will not return void, God says. Christians don't study this precious and living word for knowledge's sake, as if to impress others with their Bible trivia. No, they study to show themselves approved, to be workmen, not ashamed, you see. They study so that they may be ready to witness to the lost, to give a reason for the hope that lies within them should someone ask. They study because they know that God speaks to us through his word and that his word imparts spiritual health to us. It is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. The more we know God's word, the more we know our great God and see ourselves in comparison and fall down and worship. Doctrine leads to doxology. Let me close out our time with one of Paul's doxologies. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now has been disclosed and through the scriptures of the prophets in accordance with the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen.